Welcome to week four of our teaching series, Shelter, where we're learning together how we can find true shelter in God while we shelter in place. As I've been going to God's word for truth and strength during this coronavirus crisis, one of the verses I've been memorizing and, and praying for myself and also for you is Romans 15, 13. And I would encourage you to memorize it too. This is how it goes. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our God is a God of hope, and he wants to fill you with all joy and peace. And that happens as you trust in him. And the result is overflowing hope that comes not from our power, but from the power of the Holy Spirit. And it really is possible for us to live in joy and peace and hope during this season. But we have to trust God, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit. How can that happen? Well, the Bible teaches us so many truths, and I want us to look at a very rich passage today, Isaiah 43, 1 through 7. You'll want to get your Bibles out, and there's also a PDF on our website you can download to take notes. We're going to talk about how we can shelter without fear. This is a frightening time. Disease threatens, economic destruction threatens, death threatens. But our Lord doesn't want us to live in fear. He calls us to live by faith. He calls us to shelter without fear. You may recognize this poster, keep calm and carry on. Uh, we see it everywhere on posters and coffee mugs and T-shirts, but you may not know the backstory. In 1939, as German bombs were blitzing London, a British graphic artist decided that, that he could encourage people with his art, and so he designed this poster. But, but the people in charge decided it is never going to catch on. It's not a heroic enough call, just keep calm and carry on. Who's going to be inspired by that? And so they sent all two and a half million posters to be recycled into cardboard, or so they thought. Then in the year 2000, a single copy of this poster was rediscovered in the basement of a used bookstore in London. The owners framed it, put it by the store's cash register, and, and people started taking pictures of it. And the rest is history. We all know today that people have had a lot of fun with this. All kinds of memes have, have played off this, like keep calm and eat chocolate. How many of us are living by that one? Or keep calm and avoid zombies. Sound advice. Or more recently, keep calm and wash your hands. You might say that in times like ours, God calls his people to keep calm and carry on, to live by faith, not fear to overflow with hope as the God of hope fills us with joy and peace by the power of the Holy Spirit. But how? Recently, there was an online conversation between a single mom and a, a Christ follower who was trying to help her. And this single mom was being very open about her struggles. She said that she'd lost her jobs and was feeling very fearful. And the other person wanted to encourage her and said, just trust in the Lord. And the single mom kind of talked back and said, I'm trying to, but How? How do I do it when there's no paycheck? How, how do I do it when I have bills to pay and kids to feed? I, I just don't know how I'm supposed to trust in God. You know, it's so much easier to tell someone to trust in God than it is to trust in God yourself. It's like the difference between minor surgery and major surgery. Do you know that one? A minor surgery is a surgery someone else is having, right? But the moment I'm having a surgery, that's major surgery. It's really easy to tell someone, hey, just trust in the Lord. But when you don't have a paycheck or when you're battling depression or when you're really feeling alone, when, when everything in your life seems to be falling apart, how do you 
trust God in that moment? How do you trust God when your marriage feels so fragile? How do, how do you trust God when your kids are rebelling? How do you trust God when someone you love is vulnerable to getting very sick? How do you trust God when you just got downsized? How, how do you trust God when you spent decades saving for retirement and a third of it vanished in just a few weeks? We're not the first people to ask questions like these. In fact, Isaiah 43 was written to a nation of people living with fear. The prophet Isaiah was warning God's people about difficult days ahead. And ironically, those difficult days were be brought on by those people themselves because of their sin. They, they hadn't been walking in obedience to God. So God was going to allow the wicked superpower Babylon to sweep down from the north into Judah, the southern half of Israel. Judah was all that was left uh, since the northern half of Israel had been destroyed. And Babylon would sweep down into Judah, destroy her cities, carry off many of her people into captivity. And so the first 39 chapters of Isaiah describe these dark days ahead. But then in Isaiah 40, Isaiah turns a corner and for the rest of the book, he holds out hope of God's restoration. Even though they had brought this trouble on themselves, God would not abandon them. A day was coming when God would rescue them. He wouldn't leave them. He was going to restore them. Now that's the historical background to the passage. Let's read it, and then we'll draw five truths about God that will help us shelter without fear as we live through this season of global pandemic. Look at Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. This is what is written. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, five truths to remember whenever I feel afraid. First, uh, we need to remember who God is. Now, here's the central argument I'm making today. When we're afraid, knowing God matters more than anything else. We need to know who God is because it's only when we know who God is that we can trust what God will do. Do you know God? Do you know who he is? What kind of person God is? Do you, do you know what his character is like? That's what Isaiah tells us in verse one. Look at that again. But now, this is what the Lord says. Who is the Lord? Isaiah says, he who created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Over 10 years ago, a man in another state named Rob went through a long season of deep grief because of two significant losses. 
His best friend was Tom, a brilliant surgeon. The two owned a ski boat together. They loved to water ski. They did all kinds of things together. And one day, Tom had a tickle in his throat and a severe case of thyroid cancer was diagnosed. And five months later, he was dead. Rob lost his best friend. He was devastated. To clear his mind, he took his wife, Carol, on a summer vacation in Colorado, and they were both in great shape. They hiked the peaks. They had a great time. They went back home, and one month later, Carol was diagnosed with a rare form of melanoma. And 11 months after that, she died. So in a very short time, Rob lost his best friend and his wife. And this began for him a a, a time of deep grieving that lasted for years. It was years later, his pastor asked him to speak to the church staff about what he'd learned. And and Rob said to this staff, theology saved my life. He, He wasn't talking about reading some books. He was talking about knowing who God is. He said, knowing who God is saved my life during my grief. I want you to notice that verse one tells us four things that God does for his people. I want you to circle four verbs in this verse there on your notes or in your Bible. First, creates. It says, he who created you, O Jacob. And then second, circle forms. He who formed you, O Israel. Third verb is redeems. I have redeemed you. And then the fourth is is summons or, or calls. I have summoned you or I've called you by name. I want you to think about four things God does for us that we're told here. He creates us. He forms us. He redeems us. He calls us by name. Well, let's look at each of these these verbs that you have circled. The first one is created. God created you. And when he created you, he also created mountains and oceans and stars and galaxies. And here's the point. If God's the creator, wouldn't he have the power to deal with your problems? Answer is yes. You know, one of the ways real practical right now, you can strengthen your faith is to get outside, get out in creation, experience the world God created because we see his beauty and wisdom and and power in his creation. Stop watching the news. Stop scrolling through social media. A lot of people these days are very heavily invested in making you very afraid. Don't shelter in fear. Shelter in God by getting out into this world. See who he is, even in this creation, broken by our sin. I mean, if he can do that, then he can care for you. Second verb is formed, and it's a synonym for created, but, but this word kind of tightens the focus, makes it very personal. The, the emphasis is on the attention to detail God displays in creating us. It's a Hebrew verb, yashar, and it's, it's a picture of a potter using the most delicate pressure of his fingers to shape the clay. In other words, God pays attention to you. God's interested in you. God made you precisely and intentionally. He loves you. You're his child. He formed you, gave you a specific purpose, and he'll take care of you. The third verb is redeemed. He redeemed you. When Isaiah wrote these words to God's people, he had in mind primarily redemption from slavery in Egypt. Those 430 years of bondage to Pharaoh, God sends Moses to free them. But but hundreds of years after Isaiah wrote this, God did an even more remarkable work of redemption. God sent his son to free us, not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to our sin. And anyone who puts their hope in Jesus' death on the cross can be forgiven and begin a new relationship with a holy God. 
So trust Christ and, and, and God will forgive you and God will set you free from your guilt and your shame and your regret. He'll free you to have a positive impact in this world and he'll give you life eternal in his kingdom. See, God's redeeming work in our lives prove that he cares. It, it proves that he's good. He created you and formed you. That shows he's powerful. He redeemed you. That, that shows he's good. And then the final verse is, or verb is summoned. He calls you by name. In the Hebrew, the, the wording is what's used of parents naming their children at birth. You know, when our four kids were, were born, Dan and I named them. You named your kids too. That's a parent's job. And Isaiah is telling us that God is like a daddy who gives you a name at birth and who calls you by that name every day of your life. How, how intimate is God with you? How all-knowing? Well, he knows your name. And this means when you're tempted to think that, that God doesn't know what's going on in your life, that maybe God has forgotten you, you should remember he calls you by name. But here's the thing about all this truth. It will only make a difference in your life as you take it in and make it your own. You, you have to get to know God for yourself. You have to fill your mind and heart with the knowledge of who God is. You have to read God's word for yourself. I want you to listen to this promise. It's Psalm 9, verse 10, and it says, Those who know your name will trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Here's the thing. The more you get to truly know him, the more you'll be able to trust him to shelter without fear. So remind yourself of who God is next time you're afraid. God is powerful enough to create you, interested in you enough to personally form you, good enough to redeem you, and all-knowing enough to call you by name. Second truth that we want to see grows out of the first, and you can write this down. It's remember God is in control. Look at verse two. And if you have your Bible out, I'd encourage you to circle the word when every time it appears. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. I want you to notice, God doesn't promise to save us from our troubles. God promises to save us through our troubles. And sometimes we need to be reminded about something true about trouble. It's not if, it's always when. Raging rivers will come, blazing fires are a given. And, and maybe you might find yourself thinking at this point, you know, if knowing God doesn't stop the raging rivers and the blazing fires, what good is it? Well, just this. It's God who sets the boundaries so those things don't destroy you. It's God who's in control, who says you can go this far and no further to the water and the fire. And now it's true, it's true. And sometimes it seems like God kind of misjudges where to put those boundaries. Sometimes it seems like God allows the raging waters and blazing fires just to wipe us out completely. But Isaiah says that's not the case. I heard about a woman recently whose life was filled with unbelievable tragedy. Listen to this. She was engaged and her fiance was killed in a car accident. And later she met another man, a policeman who loved Jesus. They married, had many wonderful years, but, but he was killed in the line of duty. And when she went through the second loss, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And while wrestling with her cancer, she made an investment in some property using money from the death of her husband. And she built a house but then later it burned to the ground. I mean, I'm not making this up. When it burned, it took all her photo albums, all the memorabilia of her life with her husband. 
and I'm not done yet. In the past year or so, she's dealt with a mother with Alzheimer's, a, a daughter going through a hard surgery, a, a tumor in her ear that, that threatens her brain, a, a grandson with a stomach ailment no doctor could diagnose. It's hard to imagine anyone with more problems, except maybe for Job in the Old Testament. Now, the reason I tell you her story, it's not a see if you can top this, but to tell you what she has said to tell you that she has said that she only made it through her storms because of her stranglehold on the truth that God is in control of the raging waters and the blazing fires, and she believes they will not wipe her out. You know, we're all at different places right now. We, we talked about this last week. For some of us, this season is a minor storm, but for others of us, it seems like we're drowning, like we're being burned up. Everything's burning up. You know, wherever you are, whenever you face what seems to be an out-of-control storm in your life, remind yourself there is no such thing as an out-of-control storm because every storm is under God's control. You remember the time Jesus was crossing the Sea of Galilee with his disciples in a fishing boat? Storm comes out of nowhere. This story is in Mark 4, and it helps to understand some topographical information uh, to get this story. The Sea of Galilee actually sits in a basin 700 feet below sea level, and then just 30 miles to the north is Mount Hermon, which rises all the way to 9,200 feet. And sometimes when Mount Hermon's icy cold breezes blow down, they collide with the warm winds over the Sea of Galilee, and vicious squalls result. And in Mark 4, it was just such a storm, such a furious storm. It terrified even seasoned fishermen. And maybe you remember what Jesus was doing. He was sleeping on a seat cushion. And someone says, wake him up. And they all say, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Well, listen to Mark 4, 39. It says, Jesus got up, rebuked the winds, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Now it's amazing what Jesus does here. If you know anything about ancient legends, heroes often do these miracles by beginning with an incantation like, I command you in the name of, and then they cite the name of their God. But in Mark 4, Jesus does not call on the name of any God. He just speaks to the storm himself and it's over. Why? Because he's God. Because Jesus is in control of the storm. Friends, he's always in control of life's storms. Never forget that. Storms in your life will never cross the boundaries Jesus sets. Here's the, the third truth that helps us shelter without fear. Remember how much God paid to make you his child. Look at verses 3 and 4 in Isaiah 43. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. So what's going on here? Well, before we apply these two verses to our lives, we need to understand what they meant to Isaiah's original readers. Again, Isaiah's writing this about 700 BC. As I've already told you, God's people will incur God's judgment because of their disobedience. And 100 years later, that happens. Babylon swoops down from the north, invades Judah, carries people into captivity, and they experience an exile that lasts about 70 years. 
So about 70 years after the captivity begins, a new superpower appears on the planet. It's the empire of Persia. They, they supersede Babylon. And, and Persia is led by a guy named Cyrus. Around 538 BC, Cyrus issues a decree that every captive people in his realm should be allowed to return home. And one reason Cyrus does this is he doesn't want to be babysitting all these captive people. But he also has his sights set on the Nile Valley. He wants to conquer more territory, places like Egypt and Cush and Seba. You see what's going on? God was going to give his or people in exchange for his people. His people would be allowed to go back to their homeland in exchange for Cyrus setting his sights on Egypt and Cush and Seba. So what does that mean for our lives today? I've already said God has delivered us from captivity to sin, but that deliverance required a ransom to be, set, uh, to be paid. You see, God, God didn't pay for our deliverance by giving up Egypt, Cush, and Seba. God paid for our deliverance from sin with the life of his only son. Jesus went willingly to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. In Matthew 20, verse 28 Jesus told his followers the reason he'd come to earth was to give his life as a ransom for many. It's the same language we find here in Isaiah 43. Christ has given his life in exchange for you as a ransom for you. And it's a wonderful truth that Christ's life paid for your deliverance from sin. But again, what does it have to do with the storms you face today? What does it have to do with the coronavirus what does this have to do with the fact you don't have a job? I mean, what does this have to do with your marriage that's falling apart or your child that's turned away from God and is destroying their life? What does this have to do with our nation that's increasingly polarized and divided, a nation that, that seems determined to tear itself apart? Here's the bottom line. When we remember what it costs God to redeem us from our sin, what it costs God to make provision for us to live with him forever, that it costs God the life of his son, we can trust God to take care of us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 9 tell us this. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. See, if God values us so much, he's willing to pay this price for us. Doesn't it make sense that he will not abandon us today? You know, if you're struggling with fear, you should memorize these two verses, I really think. I also think you should memorize these next two verses. And they're a promise. It's Romans 8, 31 and 32. They say, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You think the God who allowed his son to die on the cross for you will abandon you while you shelter in place? He's paid too high a price for you. Jesus paid that price. He, he left heaven's glory. He took on our sin. He took our place. He couldn't have paid any higher price. And I'm just saying today, right now, hear me, please. You need to remember that whenever you're in a storm, in a crisis, God paid too much for you to abandon you ever. Here's the fourth truth that you can remember. Remember 
that God has created a community for you. Look at Isaiah verses five and six, chapter 43. It says, do not be afraid for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. These verses promise God's Old Testament people that day is coming when God will gather them, gather them from the four corners of the earth. After they've suffered exile, God's going to restore them. He's going to gather them in. So the question is, has this prophecy been fulfilled? And, And there are three schools of thought among Bible scholars. The first says, yes, it was fulfilled in the 6th century BC when Cyrus the Persian issued that decree that allowed God's people to return to their homeland. A second camp says, no way. They say what what happened then was just this trickle of of refugees returning to Israel, nowhere near as spectacular as what is being described here, where people are being gathered in from all the corners of the globe. Israel is being restored. This is describing, they say, what will happen at the end of time. And, And this view states that when Jesus returns to earth, after a period of great tribulation, he will set up this thousand-year kingdom on earth that's called the millennial kingdom before he creates a new heaven and earth. Some scholars say scripture lead us to believe that during this time, many Jewish people will finally recognize Jesus as Messiah, put their trust in him, and that some will move back to the land of Israel at the end of time. Then the third camp, probably the group I fall in, It may be true uh, that this is going to happen literally to Jewish people during the millennium. However, one thing we can count on, figuratively speaking, this is happening right now. What is described in Isaiah 43 is happening now. Whenever someone puts their trust in Jesus, they, they are gathered not just into a relationship with God, but they become one of God's people. They become part of God's community. And it doesn't matter where, whether you make this decision to trust Christ in a village or a suburb or an urban metropolis, whether it's in Mexico or the Philippines or India or Nigeria, it doesn't matter if you make that decision in Tracy or Mountain House or Lathrop. You see, when you make that decision, you become one of those people gathered from the north, south, east, west, gathered into the family of God. And once again, we ask this question, How does this truth impact the way we approach our crises? I want you to stop and think. If you've put your trust in Jesus, you not only belong to God, you belong to God's people, God's community. And that means when you go through any crisis, you don't need to go through it as an isolated individual. It's always as someone connected to a community of believers, someone placed in a family by God himself. Some churches put so much emphasis on a personal relationship with Jesus that we forget this fact that when you begin a personal relationship with Jesus, God puts you in his family where you instantly have brothers and sisters and God expects you to connect continually with that community. I want to ask you right now, are you connected to God's community? I'm not asking if you attend Southwinds or if you're turning this online service on every Sunday, you know, you can attend here like you go to the movies where you come, you watch, you leave. In fact, I've kind of heard that some of you, you really like doing church like we have to do it right now. It's so convenient. Church in your PJs. And some of you are thinking, you know, when this is all over, I think I'll just keep doing church on my couch. I want to tell you, I'm grateful for the technology that allows us to gather virtually now when we can't gather in person. 
But you need to understand that what we're doing now is not in any way what God plans for any of his people long term. Now, if you're physically unable to gather, that's one thing. Some of us are immunocompromised and we may not be able to gather with God's people for some time. That's different. But if we're able, doing church means being with God's people. It means being part of a family. In other words, you've got to show up to grow up. So I ask again, are you participating in the life of our Southwinds family? Have you rolled up your sleeves? Are you serving? Are you giving of your financial resources? Are you connected to a life group where you can study the Bible with others and apply it to your life and you can care one for each other? I'm not just saying this to promote life groups. I'm saying it because it's God's plan for you and you need it. You know, it may be that right now, this moment, you're okay. But remember, it's not if, it's always when. You will face a crisis and it may be just around the corner. And when that happens, I want you to have God's community at your back. I don't want you to face it on your own. You know, maybe one of the good things God will bring out of this bad time in your life is that you will renew your commitment to God's family. If you haven't yet, one of the first steps you need to take to involve yourself in God's community is to get baptized Baptism says, I belong to Jesus. I'm following Jesus. It's a a public statement. And if you've trusted Christ and, and since trusting him, you've not been baptized by immersion, Jesus calls you to obey him. But don't miss this. Baptism is also a witness to the fact that you belong to his community, that you have joined a group of people who are following him together. It's also why we, we take the Lord's Supper together. We're part of a community. Now, We can't fulfill those commands at this moment, but we will soon. And I don't want to say to you, if you need to be baptized or if you have questions about that, please let me know. Please let any of our pastors know or any of our life group leaders know. Make sure that you have God's community at your back. Number five, last point. Remember why God created you. What has God called us to even in life's storms. Listen to verse seven. God is talking here about drawing people to himself from every corner of the earth. And he says that they will be everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You know, back in 1647, church leaders put together an educational tool that they hoped would train Christ's followers in the basic doctrine of their faith. And back then, most people were illiterate. You just couldn't give them a book to read. And so they developed what's come to be called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's a series of 107 questions, and and you would memorize the answers to these questions about God and the Bible and Jesus and living for Jesus. And if you, you memorize the answers to these questions, you had a pretty good handle on your faith. A lot of churches still today use the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Some of you actually may have grown up learning the answers to those 107 questions. Now, the very first question is this, and and you may have heard this because it's a famous quotation. What is the chief end of man? Now, the verse I just read, verse 7, answers that question. God speaks of people. He says, whom I created for my glory. Why did God create you? For his glory. And that's why the very first answer to the very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. 
the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's to bring glory to God, to reveal God's glory to other people, to, to live in a dark world bearing testimony to God's glory. That's why you're here. That's your purpose. And so let me ask you this question I've been posing throughout this message. What does this have to do with how we face our crisis today? It goes like this. If God has created us to glorify him, now pay attention, then we must conclude that this is God's purpose for our lives, even in the midst of our crises. I wonder if you, like me, have ever been tempted to make a demand of God when you're going through a difficult time. You know, something like, God, what do you want from me? You ever ask that question? Maybe not out loud, but I will bet it has been whispered in your heart. I mean, what does he want from me? Well, (laughs) now you know the answer. What he wants is for you to glorify him. See, in any storm you face, that's what he wants, glorify him. I don't know anybody who's done this any better than Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you know her story. Back in 1967, Johnny was a teenager and and she and some friends were swimming in the lake and she dove into the water and she hit a submerged rock and broke her back. She's been a paraplegic ever since, but she's also a wife, also an incredible artist. She, she paints watercolors with a brush clenched between her teeth. Amazing talent. She also speaks to large audiences of people. She's a best-selling author. A few years ago, she spoke to a conference in Indianapolis, but she didn't do it live. Uh, she did it via video. And the reason that she couldn't be there was she had breast cancer and she was nauseated by the chemotherapy. But she was determined to get her message there. And so she videotaped it and she sent it and it was riveting. If you didn't know better, you think that you were listening to a 35-year-old spunky motivational speaker, not a 60-something wheelchair-bound cancer patient. There's so much joy and intensity in her voice. And her message was this, in whatever storm of life you find yourself, give glory to God. She summed up what she was saying with these words. It's kind of a paraphrase. I'm not just talking about pointing spiritual seekers to Christ by the way I handle my storms. I'm not just talking about encouraging fellow Christ followers by the way I handle my storms. I'm talking about showing even the unseen powers of angels and demons that I serve a great God. When they see how I handle my storms, I want them to say, Only a great God could inspire that kind of loyalty. (laughs) Wow. Her, Her closing remarks were these. I feel like a warrior who's been aroused by a bugle call on a cosmic battlefield, and I want to make God famous. Listen, nothing will calm our fear in this crisis like a sense of God's calling, that God has a purpose in this, that God has called me to make him famous, to display his glory. You see, when you display God's glory in good times, everything's going your way and you talk up Jesus and you give God credit, a few people listen. When you display God's glory in bad times, everybody pays attention. So keep calm and carry on. It's a pretty good message if it's more than just suck it up and keep a stiff upper lip. But what if, what if you wrote your own 
keep calm message for 2020? What if yours was keep calm and know God? What if yours was keep calm? God's got this. What if yours was keep calm and join a life group? I think I hear Chris Martinez saying amen. (laughs) What if yours was keep calm and give God glory? How do we shelter without fear? Well, we trust in the God of hope, the God who fills us all with joy and peace, the God who can make our hope overflow by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads? Father, we we come before you now, maybe afraid, maybe anxious, maybe alone. And Lord, some of us are, are really struggling right now. And so we choose in this moment to remember uh, your truth, your word. Lord, we, we choose to know you and to get you to know you more during this time. Lord, we choose to trust in your sovereign control. We choose, Lord, to rejoice that we are your precious son or daughter. And we choose to engage with your family that can support and strengthen us. Most of all, Father, we choose to live for your glory. So Father, calm our fears, strengthen our faith, still our minds, make us overflow with hope. And now, as we have prayed these words together and you have said amen, to the truth of God. Will you speak God's truth out loud with me there, wherever you are, in your home, in your office? Romans 15, 13 says, read it with me out loud. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks again for joining us. I am praying you will have a hope-filled week. We will see you again next Sunday.